This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Speaking of Asia, a podcast by The Straits Times. This is Ravi Velour, and I'm the paper's senior Asia columnist and associate editor. In this episode, I speak with the distinguished Indian geo-economist and journalist, Dr. Sanjay Baru, on Prime Minister Narendra Modi's recent official state visit to the United States. Many see Mr. Modi's trip to Washington as a watershed moment in ties between the world's largest democracies. The previous watershed moment in U.S.-India ties came when Dr. Manmohan Singh was Prime Minister of India. It happens that Dr. Baru had a ringside seat of those events because he was media advisor to Dr. Singh. In fact, he wrote a best-selling book of his time in the Prime Minister's office called Accidental Prime Minister. For that reason, there is no better person in India today to comment upon the recent Modi visit and to compare it with the events of the decade prior to Mr. Modi. I reached Dr. Baru in his home in South Delhi, and as you will hear in the background, it's another busy day in India. Welcome to Speaking of Asia, Dr. Baru. Thank you, Varavi. Glad to be here. Sanjay, what in your view were the high points of the Modi visit to Washington and the agreements reached there? Well, <laughs> You know, of course, the high point was the very long joint statement that, uh, you know, said a lot of things about taking the relationship forward, uh, cooperation in defense, in technology, access to technology, uh, greater cooperation in the field of research, um, institution to institution relationships uh, to develop uh, scientific and industrial research in India. So the relationship has certainly moved forward. But since you mentioned Manmohan Singh's uh, visit in 2006 uh, and called it a watershed moment, I don't think this visit of Prime Minister Modi can in fact be described as a watershed moment. I think this is a visit that certainly builds uh, a fairly uh, you know, impressive uh, edifice on top of a foundation. And that foundation is critical because what we saw in 2006 was a new strategic partnership when the United States, uh, which had for many, many years uh, tried to prevent the development of India's independent nuclear capability, finally recognized India as a nuclear power. And and, uh, preceding that uh, event in 2005, entered into a defense cooperation agreement for the first time. So taken together, the 2005 Defense Cooperation Agreement and the 2006 Nuclear Agreement uh, were certainly a watershed moments. They were a turning point in the India-U.S. relations. And I think then they created an environment uh, in which the relationship has taken several steps forward, both under President Obama, who followed President Bush, uh, and and subsequently under President Trump, and now under President Biden. So you see a a step-by-step deepening of the relationship, uh, which has been made possible really by the turning point uh, of 2006. 
Dr. Baru, uh, the United States is going to have elections uh, next year, and uh, so is India. Do you think uh, anything could change uh, in the trajectory of ties if new leadership came in, or would you say that at least in India there's broad consensus on the U.S.-India ties and the way they're going? I think there is a broad bilateral consensus uh, now in both countries between the Republicans and Democrats in the United States and, uh, you know, the BJP, the Bharatiya Janta Party and the principal uh, opposition party, the Indian National Congress, but also all the major regional parties which have become important in India. I think there is now a broad political mm -hmm. consensus. But I think, you know, the interesting thing as we see, uh, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and right today, as we record this conversation, there is a new controversy sparked off by the U.S. ambassador's comments on the situation in Manipur, the northeastern Indian state, where there's been sustained violence, two groups clashing for more than uh, 50 days. And, um, you know, events in the United States where extremist Khalistani groups have threatened uh, to attack or kill, in fact, the Indian ambassador who's a Sikh. All of these are, you know, disturbing events. And uh, they and, and, and also the other uh, bit of news this morning that India has not given visa uh, to a U.S. congressional delegation uh, which would like to come and look at religious freedom in India. All of this points to growing concern uh, in the United States about the human rights situation in India, about uh, you know, religious freedom in India. Uh, and, and I think the BJP uh, is certainly on a back foot, uh, despite this very successful visit of Prime Minister Modi. The BJP is certainly on a back foot at the moment as far as the U.S.-India relationship is concerned. So if tomorrow, uh, or next year rather, when, they, when there are elections, if a non-BJP government comes to power, particularly one in which the Congress is, a, is an important number, I think some of these concerns would be eased because the other parties have a track record of, of more liberal and kind of plural politics and, and, and the democratic concerns um, which, which are being expressed in the U.S. Mm -hmm. will be subdued. I, I did notice that while Prime Minister Modi was in Washington, D.C., uh, former President uh, Barack Obama made some comments on uh, what exactly you're talking about to Christian Amanpour of CNN. Uh, and the timing seemed rather interesting. Well, the timing is significant because I think it was intentional uh, to make the point that, look, our, our defense relationship is thriving, our uh, you know, strategic partnership is thriving, business relationship is thriving, but we have serious concerns. And, you know, frankly, I would imagine that these concerns are there across the world, uh, not just in the United States, though the Americans uh, speak more freely about these concerns in other countries. Uh, the U.S. has a history of that kind of talking. Other countries do not uh, express these uh, sentiments or concerns in public. But I do think that there is gen general widespread concern, including in, in East Asia and Southeast Asia, Mm -hmm. about the internal situation in India. Yes, definitely. Uh, Dr. Baru, this is the third American president that Prime Minister Modi is dealing with. Uh, there was Barack Obama, then Donald Trump, and now we have Joe Biden. Do you see 
any difference in the way Mr. Modi has handled each of them? And surely he must have gained a lot of confidence uh, in these three, uh, uh, you know, dealing with three different presidents over time. It's interesting. I mean, I think with Trump, he went overboard. Uh, you know, he had this uh, big rally both in the U.S. and in India where he virtually declared political support for President Trump. Uh, I think there was much greater uh, bonhomie in that relationship, uh, very similar personalities. I think with President Biden, uh, it's sorry, with President Obama, it was interesting uh, because, I, uh, frankly, in my judgment, uh, Prime Minister Modi was overwhelmed by President Obama's decision to accept his invitation to come as a uh, chief guest at our Republic Day Parade. Uh, in 2000, uh, sorry, 2015, January. Um, I mean, he was clearly so overwhelmed and overjoyed that he tweeted uh, the acceptance of President Obama's uh, invitation even before a White House officially announced it. So there was a kind of over-enthusiastic response. Uh, and, and, and there's a context to that because the United States have declined giving visa uh, to Prime Minister Modi uh, in the past, before he became prime minister, because of human rights concerns, uh, the situation in Gujarat. Uh, so with, with President Obama, there was a certain element of, of uh, excessive enthusiasm on India's part, uh, which I did not particularly see reciprocated uh, by President Obama, who I think in the end found Prime Minister Manmohan Singh a far more interesting person to deal with. If you read President Obama's autobiography, he makes that very clear. With President Biden now, I think it's become a very transactional relations. I mean, the fact that we have agreed to buy billions of dollars of defense equipment uh, from the United States, the fact that you know we have allowed American uh, military bases in India, allowed American ships to call at Indian ports for rest and, and uh, uh, repair, etc. Uh, I think the United States uh, is, is is delighted. At, at this change in Indian uh, position. Now, one may ask, why has Prime Minister Modi taken uh, this position? I think in some ways he's compensating for the neutral view he adopted, India adopted on the Ukraine war, mm -hmm. uh, which did not go down very well in the United States. Sanjay, the United States conducts more military exercises with India than any other power today. And the recent agreements that the two signed will embed their military officers in each other's commands. Now, how should we characterize the U.S.-India relationship today? It's a very close partnership. It's uh, across the board. Um, Navy, uh, Air Force, uh, and the Armed Forces. I think the Chinese decision uh, to march into Indian, what, you know, Indian territory, as we claim it, um, along the border in 2020, cleared the pitch. Uh, the Americans came in and, and, and provided significant assistance uh, to India in dealing with that challenge. And I think the assessment here is that if there was uh, one more such attempt by China, if there were if there were any um, you know increase in Chinese pressure, uh, then India would have no option but to uh, turn to the United States. So in some ways, China has, has pushed India closer to the United States. Um, India has taken a long time. Uh, as I mentioned, the original defense cooperation agreement was signed in 2005. So it's taken you know, more than a decade, uh, almost two decades, 
uh, for us to arrive at this point. And if, you know, if you ask what has changed, clearly uh, China's aggressiveness has, has been a factor. I know that India doesn't like the word alliance, but would you not say that at the very least, this is a quasi-alliance? Well, I think it is a quasi-alliance, and you're right to say that India does not like to use the word alliance, and, and I think that is significant. I think politically in India, the public opinion would not accept an open alliance with the United States, or indeed with any country for that matter. Uh, people often forget when, you know, when India is compared to, say, Japan uh, in Asia or some of the other uh, countries like Korea, for example, uh, or any of the European countries in NATO, that uh, India has come into being as a consequence of a very robust anti-colonial movement. The Indian national movement was an anti-colonial movement. Uh, and the colonizers were Western nations, Europe as a whole. And therefore, that political sentiment is a very strong sentiment in it. One can't wish it away. Uh, there are many Indians who would like to wish it away, uh, particularly all the globalized Indians who live in the United States. And they, they think that, you know, we are anachronistic, those of us who live in India, anachronistic uh, in making a big issue of it. But I think what we have to come to terms with uh, is that in this country, across political parties, there is still a residual anti-colonial sentiment. And, and that comes in the way of, of any open alliance. I think that also helps in defining our relationship with China, with Russia, with other countries, who do recognize that there is in India this public sentiment for uh, some kind of strategic autonomy, despite whatever alliance we enter into. And, and that, you know... Um, Every time India takes one step forward in any of this relationship, it may end up taking one step backward. Um, so that, I think there is a recognition of that fact. Mm -hmm. That makes me ask the question about the traditionally close Russia-India relationship. Where does that go from this point? You know, the Russia-India relationship, in my view, uh, will survive the current uh, pressures on India. One must distinguish between the defense relationship that India has with Russia and the United States and the larger relationship. The defense relationship um, is about buying, right? So we were buying 80% of our needs, defense needs from Russia. We have now brought it down, I believe, to less than 50%. We were buying nothing from the United States at the turn of the century, uh, you know, virtually nothing. And today, uh, from whatever data uh, we have, we are probably buying about a quarter, per, uh, you know, 25% or so of our defense needs come from the United States. Uh, and, and still, uh, uh, Russia is a bigger supplier than the U.S. And, and this defense relationship will change. We probably will buy more from the U.S. and less from Russia. But we are also insisting on what we call Atmanirbhata, which is a domestic production um, of defense equipment. And here, uh, the Europeans are more willing than the United States. France, for example, is more willing. Uh, Sweden is more willing. And so you might see uh, more and more of diversification of defense inputs. But that's only one aspect of the India-Russia relationship. I think what people often don't recognize is that India looks at Russia uh, from a strategic perspective, which has two dimensions to it. One is Russia's sheer size across the uh, Eurasian landmass. Uh, and therefore, Russia is an Asian power. 
it juts into the Pacific. Uh, it's a European power. It juts into Europe. Uh, it gives us access to the Arctic uh, route, which is opening up. Uh, and, and India certainly uh, has a policy to uh, be, uh, you know, make use of the Arctic uh, space. Um, and secondly, Russia is such a huge landmass. It's a source of energy. It's a source of minerals. It's a source of a lot of natural resources. And India is tradition. Is, uh, India's uh, deficit on you know, a per capita basis as far as natural resources are concerned. Uh, and therefore, these dependencies are strategic and important. So I don't see the India-Russia relationship kind of evaporating. I think it will remain there, uh, probably mm -hmm. less important than it was in the past, but certainly important. Is it fair to say then that uh, New Delhi has played a fairly good game in balancing various forces in play geopolitically? Indeed. In fact, that's the one credit I give to the Narendra Modi government. I mean, I have been a critic of the Modi government as far as domestic policies are concerned. But I think on foreign policy, he has played it well. I think there's great appreciation uh, that, you know, our response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, our buying oil from Russia, our resisting Western sanctions, and balancing our relations with uh, other countries uh, in Asia, in um, you know Japan, for example, um, and, and and in Europe, uh, France being another example. I think we have, we have been able to balance various relationships, and this goes to the credit of uh, Indian diplomacy, uh, and it goes to the credit of Prime Minister Modi, who has understood the value. In fact, I wrote a column some time back calling Modi uh, policy new Nehruvianism. I mean, Narendra Modi foreign policy is really fundamentally no different from Jawaharlal Nehru's policy uh, of, of looking for space in a difficult world. Would you say that St. Pansy does dress like Pandit Nehru? I think so. I think, you know, somewhere Modi wants to be seen as a Nehru of the 21st century uh, and someone who has the ability to be as tough as Indira Gandhi. I think there are two people who he is obsessed about, I believe, would be Nehru and Indira Gandhi. In, for, you know, Nehru as far as foreign policy is concerned and Indira Gandhi as far as domestic policy is concerned. Interesting. Sanjay, a moment ago, you talked about the Arctic. And as you know, the China has declared itself a near-Arctic state. And it works very closely with Russia uh, you know, to, to get access to the Arctic route which, as you said just now, quite rightly, is getting to be strategically very important. Now, back to the U.S.-India relationship, could you give me a sense of how the Chinese ought to be viewing this relationship? Well, I keep telling the Chinese that I meet, and I've met many over the, over the years, and when they complain about India's relationship with the United States, I've been saying to them uh, till now, I mean, now, of course, as I... You know, correctly mentioned, we have taken several steps uh, forward in the U.S. defense relationship. But till now, which is really till pre-COVID, my last interaction with the Chinese was before COVID, uh, I would say two things to them. I would say what I desire for India is a relationship with the United States that is at least as good as the relationship that you had, that is China had with, with the United States. Uh, U.S. investment in China was far more than U.S. investment in India. U.S. students going to China and Chinese students going to uh, U.S., the traffic was far, far more than anything there was between India and the U.S., uh, tourism, etc. 
So U.S.-China relationship was something that, uh, as an Indian, I aspired for India. And so I would say to the Chinese, you know, why are you complaining? We are nowhere near you. And incidentally, even today, we are nowhere near China in terms of the level of American investment uh, in India compared to American investment in China. We are nowhere near the level of people-to-people traffic or business-to-business traffic. And, and, and so China has has benefited from its relationship with the United States. Uh, and that is what we seek in India. Mm-hmm. Do you expect Beijing's relationship with India to harden after the U.S.-India relationship has tightened so much? And would you say it is too late to salvage the India-China relationship? Or do you think there's still hope? Well, I think, I think there is hope because... I, I believe we need to imagine there is hope. I don't think India and China uh, can give up hope uh, as far as improving their relationship is concerned. Uh, we are neighbors, uh, and, and uh, our long history has not been one of, of, of conflict. But more important, uh, we both agree that the border issue needs to be resolved. It's not as if uh, one side says there's a border problem and the other side says there's no border problem. Both of us agree. Uh, and uh, we were having a conversation during Prime Minister Manmohan Singh's times. We, uh, we did have a framework uh, for discussion uh, on the border uh, differences. The challenge, in my view, for both Chinese and Indian political leadership is to come to terms with the ground reality as far as the border issue is concerned. India and China have to change the maps that they show to their own people uh, at some point in time. And I'm not convinced that even the Chinese leadership is ready, and certainly the Indian leadership is not, uh, to change the country's map in order to come to terms with the reality on the ground. I don't think there's any point in India claiming Aksai Chin, for example, or the Chinese claiming Arunachal Pradesh. But as far as the border itself is concerned, or what we call the line of actual control, uh, we have to accept that there has to be some give and take, which requires wisdom in both countries. And in the recent past, we have not seen that kind of wisdom. I'm afraid in both countries. I don't think President Xi Jinping has shown wisdom in dealing with India. Uh, if anything, he has managed to push India closer to the United States. And of course, our political leadership uh, has not shown wisdom, though very interestingly, uh, there is a change in the rhetoric. I think from the Indian side, for example, we no longer speak about boycotting Chinese goods. The trade relationship has again become robust. Uh, There's more and more business happening between India and China compared to the fact that about four years back, we were talking about boycotting Chinese goods and banning Chinese you know, uh, companies, etc. So there is a, a willingness to recognize uh, the realities of the economic relationship. That's right. I was just going to point out that the two sides exchanged goods worth $136 billion last year, despite all the trouble. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Baru, I have a last question for you, and it's about ASEAN. How do you think we in Southeast Asia should view the U.S.-India relationship? Do you think it's something that could impact us? And in what way would it impact us? Well, you know, I've been a strong advocate of India-ASEAN relations uh, for a long time. Uh, 
25 years ago, I wrote a paper on India-Asia and economic relations. Uh, and so I would argue very strongly that we need to be energetic in reassuring countries in ASEAN that whatever uh, we do to manage our bilateral problems, our bilateral relations, whether with the United States or with China or indeed with Russia, that we uh, are part of Asia, that you know, we have a very strong relationship with many ASEAN countries, particularly Singapore, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, now Philippines, um, Myanmar, um, and, and, and uh, Thailand. So, and of course, Vietnam. I mean, how can I forget Vietnam? These of these countries, we now have very important uh, bilateral relations. And therefore, ASEAN uh, is an important part of our neighbor. Um, I would uh, constantly urge Indian political leaders uh, to pay great attention to the region as well. Um, as you know, when I was working with Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, um, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh would always talk about the centrality of ASEAN uh, in the Asian uh, kind of uh, processes. Um, and, and I would continue to uh, argue that you know ASEAN has to be the fulcrum uh, in the region, given the fact that the big economy or the big countries, whether China, Japan, India, uh, have difficult uh, relationships. I think the ASEAN countries can play a positive role. Mm-hmm. Um, but, 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 you know, I think on the trade front, we've had some uh, problems which they persist. Uh, Indians have complaints about uh, the imbalance in, on, in the trade relationship yes. uh, with some of the ASEAN countries. If I could ask a specific question, you know, in this 58-paragraph joint statement that came out of the uh, U.S.-India summit uh, in Washington, there were specific references to the South China Sea and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Quad uh, and I2U2, which is the uh, loose arrangement between Israel, India, United States, and the United Arab Emirates. Do these things have strategic implications for Southeast Asia, uh, particularly for maritime Southeast Asia? Yes, I mean, I I think, you know, uh, as I said, we are now in defense relationship with Vietnam, with the Philippines, um, which is growing, um, with uh, Singapore. So it would have implications for ASEAN, but I hope that we work in a cooperative uh, mode with ASEAN. Because our interests uh, are, are similar, uh, mm-hmm. we want uh, you know freedom of the seas. Uh, we want you know freedom of uh, navigation. Uh, we are all dependent on the Indo-Pacific region, uh, and and therefore I think uh, there's a lot of shared security interests, and uh, we should not neglect that. We, we meaning we in India should not neglect that. Should not neglect that. Yes. Interesting point to end this conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Baru, for coming and speaking of Asia. Thank you. Thank you, Ravi. Thank you. for this very interesting. And that's a wrap for Speaking of Asia, a podcast series by the Straits Times Asian Insider Channel. I'm Ravi Velour. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and family. If you'd like to read my articles, we have links in our podcast show notes below.
That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the Audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.